Hello and welcome to the first official episode of our podcast, Gurus at Dawn. I'm here with my co-host, Ren. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about George M. Fredrickson's take on white supremacy. A little quick background on Fredrickson. He was a well-known professor at Stanford University where he taught history. He is also a highly revered pioneer of racial ideology, as well as his comparative racial studies. We're going to be taking a deep dive into one of his most well-known works, White Supremacy, a Comparative Study in American and South African History. As I'm sure you can tell from the title, the first place we're going to be studying is the American South and North American colonies. We're going to be comparing the logic and rationale they have behind slavery in the past and how that's reflected in systemic racism in modern American society. And the second place that Fredrickson decided to use for this comparative study was the Cape of Good Hope, which was colonized by the Dutch in the year 1652. A little frame of reference, that's about 45 years after the first English colonies began to arise in North America. Now these two places are highly comparable, starting with some of the reasons why the Dutch decided to make a colony in the Cape of Good Hope to begin with. Now originally the Dutch had planned on this being a resting stop for their international trade route. However, after spending a little time there while establishing this trade rest stop, they realized that the land actually had a lot of potential to make a good colony for what they were looking for. One of the main things that they saw right off the bat was the extensive agricultural potential this land had, which is also similar to the reason why the English decided to colonize at such a high rate in North America is because of how plentiful the agricultural promise was. The Dutch and English really enjoyed this type of colonization over others because it was far less appealing for their Spanish counterparts at the time. During this period, the Spanish were far more interested in quick and very lucrative trade agreements. They were also very enticed by a lot of mineral wealth in areas, but they weren't really interested in staying in a place so long that you could start to reap agricultural wealth from the area. For the English and Dutch, who had no problem staying in foreign lands for a long time, they kind of jumped on the idea of being able to make a lot of money from somebody else's land. The Dutch were very enticed by the land as well because there wasn't a huge number of indigenous peoples there. The indigenous people at the Cape were known as the Khoikhoi, and while the Khoikhoi had a very plentiful culture and were doing just fine before the Dutch emerged onto the scene, there weren't enough of them in numbers to be able to compete with the Dutch. Similarly, in North America, while there were plenty of tribes and indigenous people throughout the land, they were not a homogenized group. And what we see in both places is that through sheer numbers and resources, the people currently occupying the land were just completely overwhelmed. And unfortunately, in these instances, white supremacy was able to win out. Yes, yeah, so and now that you've brought up the subject of white supremacy, this is a good time to go ahead and establish the difference between 16th and 17th century logic surrounding slavery and the justification of slavery versus the later 18th, 19th century ideas and justification for that subject. In the 1500s, people weren't really <laughs> carting along books on biology. That wasn't really a thing that happened. People didn't really talk about biology the same way that we do today. So there wasn't really the same kind of grounds for biological difference between races. We're going to be seeing our two major arguments of slavery versus those who are allowed to own slaves. 
The first one we've all kind of heard about, I think, at some point, especially in regards to indigenous peoples versus the colonizers. We hear the idea of civil versus savage, and that was a really simple idea that if an English person or European person came to a new land and was not able to understand the type of government or lack thereof, as well as a lack of understanding within the culture of the place, they decided that it was a savage place and they, they were without civilization. Another really common argument at the time was the idea of Christian versus heathen. That was the idea of bringing the word of God to those who had not heard it yet. Which of course had a lot of limits attached to it because while we will see religious justification throughout the conversation of white supremacy, the core root of it was different in the 16th century versus where it ended up being the 18th and 19th centuries. In fact, in the year 1537, the Pope at the time, which was Pope Paul III, declared that Christianity must come before slavery. And on page 9 of the book, some renowned historians of the time said, Slavery was the natural condition of persons' inborn rudeness and inhumane and barbarous customs. They argued that the civilized men are the natural lords of such savages, and that if the latter refuses overlordship, they may be forced to obey by arms and may be warred against as justly as one would hunt down wild beasts. We can see that this is a precursor of the biological racial difference ideology. They're starting to make distinctions between those who are worthy of owning slaves and those that they deem naturally born to be slaves themselves. Yes, and to give a little bit more context about that particular quote, it was a debate that was being held by several Spanish leaders at the time. There was no conclusive judgment passed about this particular debate. However, it definitely reinforced some pretty problematic ideas revolving race, as well as contributing to the idea and reinforcing the idea of white saviors and white heroism, which we're naturally going to see a lot of, especially going more into the 18th and 19th century idea of slavery, particularly the antebellum period of the American South. Now that we've brought up the different ideas of what slave owners at the time were using to justify their role as slave owner, it's still pretty notable to address why certain minorities were not used over others. For instance, one might think, oh, the natural choice for the main workforce in both of these places would be the indigenous peoples who were regarded at the time to be savage. So therefore, they could be within the realm of acceptable people to enslave by the colonizers. There were a couple reasons why that did not end up being the main workforce, but it is important to note that both these places, both the Cape and North American colonizers, had much different relationships with the indigenous peoples. For instance, in the Cape, the Dutch leaders were incredibly dismissive and overall unimpressed by the indigenous peoples there. In fact, the Dutch leaders would refer to the Khoi Khoi people as some of the most laziest people they had ever met. Now, to put that in frame of reference, the Dutch are talking about people they have just taken the lands of, colonized their home, and now have asked to work for them for free in an enslaved situation. So that's, they're calling them lazy for not wanting to be slaves. In the North American colonies, there was a slightly more tolerant, and I am using that word very loosely, view of the indigenous peoples. What I mean by that is the English were able to find use 
for the indigenous people in that area and they exploited it. They exploited them for their agricultural knowledge and we can see that reflected in the native figureheads that were allowed to revere in our society. People like Sacagawea, Pocahontas, and most notably and comparably the mistreatment of the Wampanoag tribe that we so frequently reference when we're retelling the story of Thanksgiving. Now moving on from their relationships with the indigenous people to shed more light as to why they were not the main workforce, another huge thing is that the indigenous peoples had home field advantage. Indigenous peoples were far more likely to flee and more importantly flee in a successful manner from their slave owners than other people might because they actually know the land well enough to one, know their way around the land, but also two, how to take care of the land so that if they're on their own for a while, they would feel comfortable foraging slash any type of agricultural things they needed to partake in in order to survive until they were able to meet back up with their tribe, which is another huge thing that whole field advantage gives you. And unless the English and Dutch were able to overcome every single member of each and every individual tribe, of the indigenous peoples, it really was very, very slim that the indigenous peoples that they were able to capture would not be able to make their way back home. So predictably, the next logical step for the colonizers was to bring in a new workforce. This will link us to the idea of not only condoning slavery, but condoning the slave trade, which it is very hard to not call the slave trade evil. Because as we know, the cruelty within the slave trade business was plentiful. So this is where we start seeing specific words and vocabulary being linked to people of color. In the book, on page 71, it says... What made the slave trade seem a legitimate enterprise to Europeans was, first of all, the belief that slaves were in fact prisoners of war or criminals whose enslavement was an alternative to execution. And we see this in our modern society through the American prison system and the 13th Amendment loophole that allows for slavery as punishment for a crime. Yes, and to just revisit a past topic that we had brought up, this really does go the extra mile to enforce white heroism. It really feeds into the idea that if you own slaves, you are saving a savage or a heathen from a life of criminalization and imprisonment from their own ignorance. This is also a good time to touch on the topic of colorism and how it affected white workers who were brought over, migrant workers or indentured slaves, and how they played into this. And while this is something that was slightly practiced within the North American colonies, it really was kind of the path never traveled by the Cape. And there were some major reasons going on as to why this type of workforce was not sustainable over a certain amount of time. One huge factor was that they didn't want to make the home front in Europe too sparse. So they didn't want to get everybody who was European to work in not Europe. They wanted somebody to be there keeping up the home front. Another huge problem with white people is that they had too many rights attached to them because they came from civilized governments. Also, there was a lot more violence that was seen within the white workers because there was less of a buyer's remorse going on with the slave owners. They kind of had it in their brain. They were like, well, listen, I can beat this one up because I didn't pay for them for life. I just paid for them to be contractually obligated to work for me for like maybe five years or whatever it was. So I can beat them up and it'll be fine because I don't have to figure out how I'm going to keep this busted up slave, I'm just going to get rid of them when the time comes. And it's important to remember that this was not out of kindness. There 
the myth of the happy slave is absolutely not true and we don't want to perpetuate that. But the reason that economically it makes sense that they were more violent towards workers that were not going to be there for very long because it wasn't a lifetime investment. They were just being frugal. Yes. Exactly. And with the people that were being brought in for the slave trade, they wanted to make sure it would last them through their lifetime and hopefully into their children's lifetime as well. And one thing that we haven't touched on that was really the nail in the coffin for any notion that migrant workers or indentured slaves be a main source of labor was simply that they didn't want to do this kind of work. On page 67, there's a quote that really sums up this ideology. It was alleged that there were many kinds of work that whites simply refused to do because the opinion was strongly established in the colony that hard, unskilled labor was beneath the dignity of Europeans and must be performed by non-whites. I just want to bring up the caucasity of that statement and that notion. This is coming from the same people that earlier we were talking about the Dutch leaders who were ragging on the Khoi Khoi for not wanting to do unpaid labor and calling them lazy. So I think it's very interesting that white people were out here saying they don't think they should be doing that type of work, which what they mean is they don't want to do the work. Now, moving on to some of the more legal things that were happening in the Dutch and North American colonies at the time, the justification of slavery was brought up a lot more in American legislation than it was in the Dutch legislation. It was a topic of discussion in the Dutch colony, it just wasn't as prevalent. And that led to a lot of differences being established within the laws. For instance, the treatment of half-white individuals was starkly different between how it was handled in American colonies versus how it was handled in the Dutch colony of the Cape of Good Hope. For the Cape of Good Hope, if a person was half-Dutch, specifically had a Dutch father, they would be allowed to be freed if they had the two following things under their belt. The ability to speak Dutch fluently and were baptized and knew the word of God and followed the word of God. If they had those two things by the age of 20, they were eligible, technically eligible, to be freed. Technically, under law, those who were born of slave heritage did also have a chance to be freed. If they knew Dutch and it, they were baptized. Sometimes around the age of 30 and 40, they were eligible for those things. This was not something that actually was seen in practice, but it was something that they could do if they had a sponsor and a lot of other things involved with that. Now, in America, that was much, much different. In fact, not only were half-white people not given a chance to be freed and were always seen a slave, they were completely ignored. So America just decided to pretend like these interracial relationships weren't taking place, even though they most clearly were. And trigger warning here, we absolutely know that they were. There were so many white slave owners who were raping their slaves, and that happened constantly. And these women were getting pregnant constantly. So of course, there were plenty of half-white slaves in the mix, but they just were being ignored on a national and on a social scale completely. And so were their rights. Within this time frame, 16th, 17th century, is that while colorism is always present 
in these race topics, in this discussion of slavery, it is not the driving force behind it. What we're seeing is a mass justification for slavery because of economic purpose and economic drive. They wanted to make sure that they could maintain a not only lucrative business with slavery, but an affordable business with slavery where they didn't have to worry about the overall moral repercussions of it or religious repercussions of it. They really just wanted to make sure that from a moral and religious standpoint, they were covered. They're saying that they're allowed to partake in these practices because they are trying to spread the word of God, but that's not what's going on at all. You can see this because in both the Dutch colony of the Cape of Good Hope, as well as the North American colonies, there is an extreme amount of hypocrisy going on within the Christian religion. For instance, in America, lots of slave owners straight up told missionaries to not even worry or try with their slaves. These slave owners would say things like, oh, you know what? They're beyond hope. Listen, I've known these people their whole life. They're incapable of learning the word of God. Don't even try. Save your breath. Go somewhere else. That's what they were doing in America. Adversely, what they were doing in the Cape, they actually allowed the word of Islam to deeply incorporate itself within the slave culture in the colony. This becomes very apparent when the English eventually take over the colony in the year 1803 and they do for the first time on record a census of the slave population there. They find in this census that Muslims outnumber Christian slaves by three to one. This perfectly illustrates the fact that they weren't really actually hoping to spread Christianity. They were hoping to spread it within the limits of allowing themselves a workforce. And speaking of the British takeover, in 1812, they establish a law that mandates Christianity must come before slavery. And this is a novel instance in the Cape of Good Hope where they are legally mandating this philosophy. In the past, as we saw, it was very common for people to find and use loopholes that allowed them to prioritize their economic greed. And this really put a stop to that. After this particular policy is established, debates around and involving slavery become solely based upon race because beforehand they were able to prioritize other types of things like civil versus savage, Christian versus heathen, that goes right out the window because it no longer works for their purposes. So they change and they shift the ideas surrounding slavery and Christianity. In fact, in the American South, what we'll see very clearly is an idea that is being firmly established that not only does Christianity allow for slavery, it supports slavery. They start using logic like if you teach your slave Christianity, then they'll understand how important it is to be dutiful to your master. And this also really reinforces the idea of slave owners in the South viewing themselves and comparing themselves with the likeness of God. And we don't see this same rhetoric used in the Cape of Good Hope mostly because race was not being talked about on legal levels. And it's not that there was not racism. It was purely a matter of depth. To put that in today's modern terms, the difference between racism and how it's handled in today's society versus how it was handled and seen in previous times, is that we're taking these two places, this Cape of Good Hope in the American South, and we're comparing them not because one isn't racist and the other one is. They're both extremely racist. They have deep racism ingrained within both society and legislation. The difference is we're comparing overall depth 
and the amount that it still affects racism and the evolution of racism today. So we can't really accept that anymore, nor should we have ever. Not talking about race issues will not make racism magically disappear. And that's not what we're seeing in the Cape. They just let their racism persist. And it was still very much present. Let's just illustrate how very much it had lots of racism in its legislation. For example, we'll go ahead and bring up a specific law that was put in place in 1708. It established that there had to be a fee that people paid in order to free a slave. It meant that not only did you have to have a person willing to free you and willing to teach you the ways of Christianity because only a Christian can be a freed person. So they had to be willing to free you teach you Christianity, and then they had to pay a fee on top of that. Most of the people at this time who are going to be interested in such in-depth freeing of peoples are not going to be the people with money. People who are going to be most interested in that are newly freed people themselves. They'll want to build their community of newly freedmen, which means they would have had to establish themselves well enough to be able to pay for a fee. Furthermore, this is not a law that went away or got less demanding over these people. In fact, almost 70 years later, in the year 1777, that fee was not only kept in place, but it timesed itself by five. So now it was five times more expensive to free a person. And now that we've brought up law in general, another thing that we should do is go ahead and compare what is happening in the American colonies and the American South in particular at this time. In the year 1691, Virginia actually passed a law that essentially made slave owners in charge of the transportation of their newly freed slaves back to the country they came from. A slave owner in 1691 in Virginia had to, one, want to free his slave, two, make him Christian, and three, pay for them to get home. So no slave owner is going to want to do that. They're not going to want to free a person that they've bought. That's not economical for them. So that doesn't make sense. But what this does bringing up this law, it illustrates the fact that not only were slave owners unwilling to free their slaves, but the state didn't really want them to free them in the first place. So slave owners were thereby empowered by the legal system because what the government in both places the dutch colony both after and before it was taken over by the english and the english colonies in america they did not want to deal with an overwhelming amount of newly freed peoples because slaves were only brought over for economic purposes and economic growth so they didn't want to deal with newly freed peoples who would be allowed and allotted under law the same rights as their white counterparts and we can see that these laws were very successful in keeping the population of freed people really low. In 1820, 8% of the black population was free. And that dropped even lower to 6% in 1860. And this is in post-revolution times. So it's not something that we're only seeing in the British colonies. It's something that continued on into the newly created American nation. Now that you've brought up those numbers and how low they are, it's probably a good time to really illustrate exactly why these two colonies have kind of made it into their own category, separate from other colonies that were flourishing at the time. Both of these places were able to maintain a very, very small 
freedmen population. Because of this, they became closed slave states. This is not a trend that we're seeing in other colonies at the time. In places like the Caribbean and Latin America, they won't have that ability to make them such stark closed slave states because the freed population had become too large. So they naturally, in the places like the Caribbean and Latin America, became more dependent on racial diversity in order to allow their governments to flourish, while the Cape and the American South became more dependent on white supremacy in its ability to flourish. Now, while they share this trait of being slave states, they do differ very much so and begin to starkly differ from one another on social issues, which really sets a tone for the rest of this particular comparative study. What we start to see in the American South during the antebellum period is a deeply ingrained, well-established, two-category caste system on a social level. Fredrickson does a really good job laying out this caste system. He outlines two basic essential parts. The first caste would be white people. And in this first caste, there are separations amongst white people. But let's talk about the second caste before we get into the different levels of the first caste. The second caste is black people. That's it. <laughs> That's the whole second caste. And I know what you're thinking. There weren't just white and black people living here at the time. Yeah, other races were completely not involved in this, which is why it's so hard to find where they would fit within this caste system. They suffered from several different oppressions themselves, but it's hard to link them to the same oppression that black people are going to be facing at this time because black people had an entire caste devoted to them in this system. Now, going back to the first caste in the system, we have white people. So the main differentiation between that would be white people who are rich and white people who were poor and then people who fell somewhere in the middle. White rich people had the ability to vote. They owned land. They were profitable. They had slaves. That's what made you rich. <laughs> While white poor people, they didn't really have the ability to vote. They couldn't vote. If you didn't own land, you didn't vote. So they didn't vote. They didn't have that right. But it was important to establish the difference between the two castes. And this is why. Because white people had much more in common on an economic level as they did with a freed black man than they would ever have with a rich white person. But in order to ensure and maintain the white supremacy that had become ingrained in the culture, they had to make sure to distance the white poor man from the black freedmen. So moving on to the second cast, we have the differentiation between a freed black man and a slave black man. And yes, I am specifically using man in this because we know that women were not even almost thought of to get, be given rights at this time. So I am using the term man because it's just, it's more applicable in this specific situation. So within the second tier or the black caste, there were certain rights that were immediately revoked from the black population, regardless of their status of being freed or slave. For instance, freedmen were not granted the right to vote, testify against whites, or bear arms. Bearing arms in particular is interesting because of its importance in the black community. We see that with the Black Panthers and with current day black conservatives who are opposed to any form of gun control for the fear that similar laws and restrictions have been placed on them and disproportionately enforced on the black community since the birth of the nation. Speaking of birth of a nation, that's on my list of top movies never to see again. And just to further illustrate a past point we had made before about how today's criminal justice system very much still is seeped with this type of rhetoric that was once imparted on black people and slaves, 
is now still imparted on convicted felons of today. I'm just going to read off what particular rights you lose if you're a convicted felon. This is coming straight from thelawdictionary.org. So if you want to fact check this, fact check this. But I'm going to read it straight from the site. You are taking away your right to vote, travel abroad, you lose your right to bear arms, you cannot perform jury service, you also lose your ability to be employed in certain fields, you are not eligible for public social benefits and housing, and you also will be denied parental benefits. So just to highlight three of those, you lose your right to vote, to perform jury service, and your right to bear arms, which is just shockingly similar to exactly what black people, regardless if they were freed or in bondage, they were all denied those specific rights. Now, getting back on subject of the Cape, while we are seeing these laws getting more strict in the American South, they're actually very much loosening up in the Cape. For example, while the United States was restricting black people freed or not freed, the right to own guns, in 1722 they actually allotted freed people to join a militia that was armed and trained in guns. So, while in America you can own a gun, they were giving them to you in the Cape. Another huge difference that really sets the tone is the treatment of interracial couples. That's something that will be a main theme in other podcasts pertaining to this book, and it is definitely something we'll touch on really quickly, but this is kind of a foreshadow for future episodes. While in the American South and the United States in general, interracial couples were completely banned and ignored, like we previously spoke about, in the Cape, it was rather accepted on a social scale. It really was kind of unremarkable for you to see an interracial couple in public or living together. It was kind of normalized. And a lot of this can be chalked up to ways of handling things socially, and that's why we're starting to see these stark differences between the Cape and the American South. But let's boil it right back down to what it started as, the fact of its economic relevance. In the Cape, the need for slaves had starkly declined since the beginning of it. They had started needing slaves less and less there. While in the United States, and particularly the American South, their economy not only needed slaves, but it began to be overwhelmingly dependent on slavery. Economically, the South was destitute without a slave population and workforce. And so this is going to very much affect the social status as well as the legal status of slaves and freemen. For instance, slave owners themselves while in the Cape had certain limits placed upon them. Were they crazy hard limits to follow? No. But were there limits? Yes. While in the American South, what we're seeing is a relentless reinforcement of the overlord position that slave owners had anointed themselves. And not only had they anointed themselves this position socially, but unimpeded by law and empowered by the system that they found themselves in. And I think that... <laughs> we're going to stop the lecture today. It really set the stage for what we're going to be talking about in the next couple of podcasts. Yeah, so we're going to take a quick little break, get some tea, and we will end it here for now. The lecture part, at least. All right, we'll be back in a second. All right, so we are back. Today I am drinking some Lady Grey, which is really great. If you don't know what Lady Grey is, it's really close to Earl Grey. It's like a softer Earl Grey. And I'm having a tisan, which just means it's a blend of different herbs. It's primarily composed of peppermint, though. It's really yummy. So I guess I'm just going to start off with my little shout out to my artists right now that I'm super into. Their name is Freddie. 
They are a gender fluid artist who is based primarily in Oakland, California. They're like extremely multi-talented. They can do a ton of stuff. They're a songwriter, rapper, producer, and they're also an awesome drag artist, which is super cool. The song that I'm going to go ahead and recommend from them is actually their song Week. It is from their newest release, an EP, Melon and Monroe. I saw the cover of this EP and I instantly knew that I was going to love the entire thing, and I do, but my favorite song is definitely Week from it. If you haven't heard it yet, please do. They're awesome. And they also have been posting a lot on their Instagram as well as Twitter. Some really great activist stuff. So give them a follow too. They're great. And the artist I would like to recommend this week is Hollis. She is a singer, songwriter, musician. She's also a public speaker, a spoken word poet, and a prominent activist. She lives between LA and Seattle. If her name sounds familiar, she is the lead singer of an electronic R&B trio called The Flavor Blue. And the song that I'm going to recommend from her is her song All My Weight from her EP that she dropped while we were all bullying in quarantine <laughs> uh, called Half-Life. The most notable thing uh, as of right now, now keep in mind that we have both recorded this and we're going to edit it the next day. This is Tuesday. Something might help happen between now and then. But my favorite thing that I've seen in the news lately is the fact that there were a ton of people who reserved tickets for a Trump's rally and nobody showed up. I'm so proud of you guys. If any of you guys out there did that, I love you. I'm so proud of you. You're amazing. (laughs) Yes, and we also want to shout out all of the people that protested either physically there in person or also through artwork in Tulsa and did not allow Trump and his rhetoric to take over that area that already has so much racial tension, especially so close to Juneteenth. Moving on to a little bit of a darker subject, but one that definitely needs to be addressed. I think we should definitely touch on Breonna Taylor and raising awareness for her cause. Unfortunately, the people that invaded her home, that murdered her, have not been brought to justice yet. And so we definitely want to shine a light on that. The more time that passes since the incidents, the less likely that it is that there will be any form of justice. We will be putting a link to a petition that you can sign on our Twitter and Instagram for those of you that need that. Another thing that we would like to shine light on that doesn't necessarily fall within the realm of Black Lives Matter, but is equally important. There's been the gross mistreatment of people being held within the ICE facilities. They are being subjected to a form of chemical warfare and it is causing them so many health problems and we need to speak out on this because their lives are on the line in this and the longer we wait, the more people are going to be subjected to this form of torture. Yeah. And to wrap everything up with a little bit of more hopeful bow, um, just want to give a little shout out to a one Kimberly Jones, who is our activist of the week that we're shining some light on. She's amazing. She's a published author. And I don't know if any of you watch John Oliver, but if you did, there's a little clip of her at the very end of his segment uh, from two weeks ago, I believe. But there's actually a full clip that you can easily find online on YouTube. It is less than seven minutes long and it's absolutely phenomenal. Please watch it if you haven't already. We will be linking that on our social media pages as well. So you can find it there. And that wraps up this week's episode of Gurus at Dawn. We hope that this has been informational for you and that you join us again next week. Bye.